Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. Each week, me and Sam, we watch a movie, we discuss a movie, and we talk about the themes and ideas it throws up. And then we always end the show with recommendations, further reading, if you will, of movies inspired by this week's film or linked to it in some way. But as always, we start the show with what else we've been watching, things we've been watching, reading, enjoying in the last week and a half, two weeks since we last spoke. So, Sam, do you have anything for us? Yes. This week, I saw something a while ago about on Twitter, I think, a feed about um, solid three-star movies. And also has... um, Speaking of movies, we James Akers last week, actually. I think I heard him talk about this a while ago, about things you, films you'd be quite happy to watch again. Mm. So James Akers likes watching Apollo 13. He's always in the mood for watching Apollo 13 again. And so I watched a film this week. It's not that great, but I just didn't mind watching it again, and I would happily keep watching it again. And it's a sort of solid three-star film. It's the first Kingsman film, which I think, other than a fairly ill-judged reference at the very end, is just it's just good fun film to watch. Um, Matthew Vaughan doesn't take the filmmaking process too seriously and Colin Firth's great and Ty Edgerton's brilliant and yes it was just enjoyable and it was what I needed after a day at work how about you I certainly agree on Kingsman it is a very watchable film the second one I wasn't as keen on no um, but I did enjoy that first one for me the big news of the week is the annual return of Bake Off I'm a big GBBO, Great British Bake Off fan, and it's come back this week. So that's been me kind of uh, suckered back into that world. It helps uh, that for various reasons I've done a bunch of baking in the last week myself. So I've made four cakes and a bunch of cakes. I've been really in that kind of baking place. Um, But yeah, so the return of season 10, I think it is now season 10 of Bake Off. Uh, It's the same usual thing of a room for bakers baking things and one goes home. It remains kind, it remains generous, it remains sort of community-themed, and probably in Britain right now, I think we need a bit of that. Uh, so, yeah, it's just it's a nice warm hug of a TV show, and I'm glad it's back. Yeah. I've seen nothing of this latest iteration. Is it still good? It is exactly as it's been every season up until now. Oh, it is. They are not messing with that formula after all the work they've done with it. So, it, yeah, it is exactly what it's always been. Um, and uh, sometimes I like that. Hey. Yeah. So this week, folks, we are um, continuing, coming towards the end of our vampire film season with the 1988 film Vampire's Kiss. How was your weekend? It's all right, you know. There's nothing worth shattering. He was an ordinary guy. Morning, everyone. 
morning. Looking for an extraordinary love. I'm Peter Lou. Rachel. I brought this girl up to my place the other night. It started with a kiss. Really hot. A very special kiss. You wanted her very badly. Yeah. A kiss that could drive you mad. I hate interrupted love affairs, don't you? Yep, 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 yep. Vampire's Kiss stars a very young, well, not not very young, he's mid-twenties, but he feels very young, Nicolas Cage in um, the role of a literary agent called Peter Lowe, who is a stereotypical sort of narcissistic, self-centred type businessman in the 1980s um, and about his various interactions with other characters um, and also the fact that he has a relationship with someone whom he believes has bitten him, has turned him into a vampire. And there are I'd say it's it's a very typical Nick Cage film. You know what you're getting from there. And uh, there are solid performances from other people, from Jennifer Beals. And I thought Peter Lowe's assistant, Elizabeth Ashley, was particularly good as well. Um, But, like I said, you know what you're getting from this film. It's Nicolas Cage doing Nicolas Cage. So, Rob, what were your thoughts? I very much enjoyed this film, um, but I think you kind of have to meet at this film where it is. Um, you go into it, as, as you say, it is a Nicolas Cage turned up to 11 Nicolas Cage kind of film. And you have to buy into his performance, I think, to get on board with this film, which I did, and I very much enjoyed it. I think the film has things to say, and he's saying them very well, but you've got to you've got to get on board with performance. I think if you don't gel with that performance or don't kind of you know jive with it it's really going to be off-putting and i can see why this film didn't find its audience when it came out because it is quite out there particularly nicola cage he's very out there in his role but myself i enjoyed it i thought he was good in it in that kind of way that i think I don't know what it is. I think he was right for this film and the portrayal he made was right for him. I think he is a good actor. I think he makes good films sometimes. And I think this, he was right for that role. And I say think I think the support from Jennifer Beals, from Maria Conchita Alonso, the people who are supporting him, and even Elizabeth Ashley who plays his somewhat possibly not always there um, therapist, I thought it was great. I think the film has things to say about uh, men and misogyny and the time and place, that kind of stuff. And it sells them well. So yeah, I'm I'm I'd give it a good strong thumbs up. What about you, Sam? Hmm. Uh, well, I don't, you're gonna have to persuade me on this one because I'm not a huge fan of this film. I'm not a huge fan of Nick Cage. Um, I it just the Nicolas Cage performance TM just mm. turns me off, and I can't get on board with it. Um. So, yeah, I, I felt... I mean, I understood some of the things this film was doing. Um, so I think I said the, the assistant Elizabeth Ashley, it's not. It's Mary Chichu Alonso. Um, I thought the the 
subplot with the assistant was particularly well done. But I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it might, it might just be me and Cage. I didn't appreciate it. Um, as a result, I just didn't get on with this film. I can see, as I say, I think the, there's a, a element of this film. It is kind of, I don't know what the word for it is. The, it is not an actor's performance. And I can see why people wouldn't get on board with it. And I think in the history of our, our show that you tend to be more on the naturalistic side rather than the more exploitative side that I enjoy. The insanity of movies is more my cup of tea than yours. Mm. For me, I think it, he, he is meant to be a caricature. He is meant to be over the top. Um, he is meant to be that insane. I think because if you look at the other characters in it, if you look at, um, so hey, guys, we're going to get into spoilers here. So with this, because of the way it ends, so we're going to get quickly into spoilers. So if you haven't watched it, probably watch it. But I think because of the way it ends and the fact that a large part of the movies that you've seen up to this point has been revealed to not be true, I think that you've got to look at what is true. So his relationship with Alva assistant, um, some of his early sessions with Dr. Glazer, um, none of his interactions with Rachel were true. And I think if you look at the characters that are true, they are very naturalistic. They're very of that kind of, um, the, the of that time of kind of 80s naturalism cinema. So he's meant to be out of place. He's meant to be unhinged he's meant to become disconnected from the world around him and that's why i think his performance works because he is instantly out of place with the world around him i see what you're saying i don't know there's, there's just something about him that rubs me up the wrong way but i mean let, let's explore that I mean, what is it then that, that uh, you don't gel with him I, over? I, I, I don't know because <clears throat> going on the notes i i sort of gauge how good a film is by how many notes I make sort of the ones that I don't have much to say about, they don't really leave much impression I made so many notes about this film and one of the very first notes I made was with that scene with Nick Cage in the club with a woman he's picking up, he was acting silently because there was music going on, I was thinking he's actually really quite good Mm -hmm. so I was yeah, I, d- I don't know what it is. There's some, something about that beginning, that scene, that I thought, yeah, th- there is something good there, and it doesn't... I don't know what, what it is. I think it's, it's right what you're saying about me being more naturalistic compared to you. I think also something that it dichotomy that we've explored between us is you tend to be more aesthetic mm. and more drawn to the aesthetic and I'm more focused on narrative and I feel like the performance from Nick Cage after that beginning which was quite effective was was very much tended towards the expressive, towards the visual, towards the aesthetic overload and I quite I, I'm more inclined to favour a, a more nuanced performance that focuses on on a narrative on on the plot that's taking place. But I, I see what you're saying that there is sort of a narrative decision made by the director in presenting Nicholas Cage as this unhinged character. I think that's the, like, the, the we are looking at this movie what thirty years later. Um, oh, don't don't do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, like, at this point in time, he wasn't the Nick Cage we know now. You know, where he is out there and is weird, made a lot of weird choices. So at this point, he hadn't, in his career, he hasn't got the clout to just be weird in the film. He isn't Johnny Depp, you know, who can just go be weird in a film and people let him do it. So they're using that skill here, I think, because it's about his unhingement. And I think... It, I think it's it's not a a big leap to take this movie and, and link it to American Psycho, um, which came out a few decades later, um, and that's like that kind of executive who gets unhinged by from from the world and that kind of eighties esque era feeling of the separation, I suppose, of executive and, and white male power from the rest of the world. You know, it is noticeable, and it's certainly a choice that you've got him as this white male executive and Alva as his Latino um, underling who then physically and sexually abuses over the course of the movie. I will say this, I think the film is at times tonally inconsistent. Um, the film, I view it mostly as like a really like a dark black comedy. Um, and I think it works on that level most of the time. But the stuff, especially with Albert, really strays into being actual like tragedy horror, and like not in like a mm. jump scare, boogie man in the woods horror, but like a deep psychological horror in which he harasses a underling to to the point of tears and sexual assault. Like that, there are bits where I'm like, oh, that's that's not that's not funny. That's not in that dark tone that he's bringing. It's not in the normal or in this the sort of tone of the movie of the slightly manic slightly over the top overly exaggerated you know it, it's it went too far at times i think if that makes sense yeah i'm well i'm, I'm just thinking when you when you mentioned psycho another one that it another film that called to mind here is is falling down that sense of this businessman who's almost been left behind by the world and is taking out his frustrations in a kind of unacceptable well definitely unacceptable way and there were times in falling down when you think well i can i can see where he's coming from but no this is wrong he had the same sort of I suppose it turns to a lesser extent because you're right, you, you side with Alva a lot more. Um, but there's that same sort of idea as, as in Falling Down of Peter Lowe being, being a bit of a relic, being a little bit left behind and it being sort of the end of the 80s and moving into the 90s and... Peter Lowe is this yuppie who doesn't belong there anymore. So I see what you're saying that there's this seem this film seems to be about well it, it's about a lot more than bloodlust and vampirism. It's it's about someone is sort of losing it. I think the film also does does a lot of work to kind of unpack the inherent misogyny in Peter Lowe and of of the time. You know it is. He is very much a deeply misogynistic character in that he tends to view, even at the start, he views sexually available women as his to take and everyone else as his to use. And his two relationships, certainly even 
even with the his imagined relationship with the vampire Rachel, like he, she doesn't play into his world of women being something he can kind of seduce and, and use and then throw away. And that's what I think spins him off into this world where he goes mad because he he's coming up against, even though it's an imagined character, he's coming up against um woman who won't play by his rules or how he thinks women should behave. And that's why he treats Alva the way he does and why he feels kind of no remorse in killing women in the club and all of that. Um, and even to his relationship with his therapist where he is demanding and calling her out to hours and, and treating her not as a human being, but as, as a, a tool to be used. I think there's a deep well of misogyny in that in Peter Lowe. And it is about the misogyny of the time. The eighties was a, you know, power suits and, and you know, it was that kind of Wall Street style, you know, misogyny. And I think that's mm. evident in this movie that the, the the author is trying to look at how like not the, the almost that's that satirical black comedy, the the ultimate end of that view of the world is this kind of vampirism. And, you know, you want to view it as like a leechy, you know, living off society, taking, but, you know, not really contributing to society the way vampires just take from their victims. It is, I think there's an analogy in here about how the capitalist corporate culture being a vampire on, on the state and culture. And that, 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 that is a deep, like, that is me like, looking at this and trying to, not trying to, but searching for deep meaning in it. But I think there's something in there. I do think there is. Yeah. That's really interesting because we've had how many 60, 70 years of vampire films now and it feels like at times there have been tonal shifts in what vampirism means, what the director is, Mm. why the director is putting a vampire on screen. And you're right that there's a sort of fundamental difference from, like we, we were looking at the vampires of, um, German Expressionism and we're talking about sort of post-war malaise in Germany to to now and vampires become something very different because you're right there's I mean and that idea of of the world sort of making making people a bit of a relic is like it, it maybe what this film is is the world waking up to the fact that that culture of corporate greed of narcissism was vampire-like mm. and it's it's a sense that this this film is the director saying well we need to shake this off we need to move into the 90s and get rid of this and that's the that's what you have sort of the combination of that i suppose in in falling down like by the time of falling down it's very definite that that time has ended mm. i think it's one of those things that very often when you talk about horror movies, a lot of sort of talkers around the idea that zombies are like a blank slate in which you can project things, be that mm. capitalism. And I think sometimes in those conversations, other horror stories, even horror trope monsters like vampires or the thing about Lagoon or Franklin or whatever, it is, like the repeatable monster sort of archetype are often forgotten. But I think that vampires, as we've seen throughout the last, what, six, seven, eight weeks now of this of this series, that vampires are almost always a meaning something else, whether it is post-war malaise, that they, or here where it's the idea of a capitalism being a vampire on, on the culture and a uh, country. 
they may be about drug abuse or it may be about all of that. Like they, they are almost always about something. And that to me has been a bit of a revelation watching all these movies is that more than zombies, as much as zombies, vampirism is almost always about something else. And even in a movie as kind of schlocky and weird and darkly odd as Vampire's Kiss, vampirism is still used as a plot device, but also as a metaphor, as a, a subtext, something else. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I, I think at the back of my mind, it was always something I knew about horror films or vampire films or zombie films, that they were a metaphor for something else. And I think it's been, re- it, it, the, the revelation has been just how many different things it is a metaphor for. Mm. So that you can have a vampire with a completely different outlook that, that has something to say about a completely different environment, sort of 10 years on from, well, 15 years on from, from Ganger and Hess, but this is a very different film in all sorts of ways. I mean, that's been a very interesting sort of double bill, I suppose, in this show. You can go from Ganger and Hess to this, like, Obviously, they are in the same season. It's both about vampires, but they're such wildly different movies. Just wildly different outtakes of on the culture of vampirism and what it means and what it does. And I think, I think it's great, but like it, it's amazing. Even like we obviously did samurai movies, and like there were changes in tone and tension shift, but there certainly wasn't the big swings we've seen in vampirism. No. So, Sam. Whilst I don't think I've convinced you to uh, to be on board with this film, do you have some recommendations for us for things that you might want to put uh, towards instead? Well, yes, and actually, I will say that while I don't think I'm ever going to be a Nick Cage fan, you have you have swayed me because you're right. There, there is a lot more to this film than just a schlocky vampire film, and I would. It, it's one that I would be interested to go back and see again because I think a lot of of what I brought to it was sort of reluctant pushback against Nick Cage mm. because I don't like the focus on aesthetics of his acting, and I think if I just put that behind me, sort of remove that chip on my shoulder, I would be able to see this film as a metaphor and for that for this film to work much more effectively so it it's a, it's a sort of half conversion for me fair um, enough I'll, I'll, I'll take that yeah hey, <laughs> um, in terms of um, recommendations based on this um, one well my first one is a Nicholas Cage link and this podcast is sort of bookended by Matthew Vaughan films because I want to talk about the 2010 film Kick-Ass, which is great. And if you haven't seen it, you've seen it, you should see it. Um, and also, it, it was a... I have said revelation too much on this. In this episode, but it was it was just extraordinary to me how 
adult a film about children could be. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's enough from that, that film. But if you haven't seen it, do go and see it because it, it is genuinely eye-opening. And it's it's a superhero film, but it's not a conventional superhero film. So and it came out sort of early on in the the sort of the MCU well that we're going it, not part of the inverse, but it was at the time that that was burgeoning franchise and yet it was doing something very different from other superhero films at the time. I think it's sort of the same time as Iron Man two ish ten. Um, so yes, that, that's my first recommendation this week is Kick-Ass. My second is sort of a straight-down-the-line recommendation of another Jennifer Beals film. Um, Jennifer Beals, who was Rachel in this, um, is also in uh, the most famous Jennifer Beals film that anyone can can remember is nineteen eighty three film Flashdance, immortalised more recently in Robert Webb's extraordinary uh, performance in in a leotard as Jennifer Beals. And I mean, go and watch it on YouTube. It's it's just a sight to behold. <laughs> I can um, only imagine. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was dancing for comic relief, but I don't. It just didn't need to be. It, it was, it's extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, those are my two recommendations for this week, is Kick-Ass and Flashdance. Excellent, excellent. I um, have also gone um, actively, I suppose, um, for my recommendations. So my first recommendation is, uh, we talked a lot about her character in this movie um, and probably her, reaction, her interactions with uh, Nick Cage, but Maria Contrito Alonso. We have talked a little bit, not really enough about her as an actress and her role. I thought she was really good in this, in that sort of strange mix of sort of deference, but humour and anger towards the other. I thought she brought a real, a real sort of compassion to the role that could have been a bit of a no, one-note role, no otherwise. Um, and all the way through, I'm like, oh, I know you from somewhere. I know you from somewhere. And I couldn't think why. And in the last 10 minutes, it suddenly clicked that she stars opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1987 movie, The Running Man. I love this movie. I have a deep abiding love of this kind of era, sort of the hard body action movies, a commando, um, predator, that kind of thing. And I love Running Man. I think it's a weirdly inventive, weirdly prophetic movie from the eighties about, uh, about the game shows and television and culture and all of that. Um, and she plays, so the love interest and the other, um, running man from the movie. She's very good in that as she is in Vampire's Kiss. My second recommendation is for the, I thought, very good actress who played Dr. Glaser, her, um, Dr. Glaser? Dr. Glaser, the psychologist who looks after Peter Lodge in the movie. She had a real balance of being professional and then towards the end when we start moving into the dream sequences, bringing in an element of humour there, but also an element of weirdness. I thought she's really nailed that role as someone who would be in that kind of situation. She popped up 
as a sort of bit pop, a B character, shall we say, in a series from earlier this year, which I'm sure I've talked about on this show before, and that's Russian Doll. It's a Netflix show starring, I think, written by Natasha Leon. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the show because to know anything about it is to kind of get an idea of where it's going to go, but it's kind of like a filthy, foul-mouthed, metaphysical version on Groundhog Day in modern-day New York. But it is at the same time so much weirder than that and so much more heartfelt and so much more wholesome but also stranger. And I can't really go into too much without giving it away, but it isn't it is one of the best TV shows that I've seen this year. And she plays one of the main characters, sort of surrogate mother figure. Um and she once again brings that kind of same kind of role. She's a therapist in that as well. She brings that same kind of calm, understanding, but balanced with a kind of a, a darkness and a humour that really sells and that made me sort of enjoy her scenes quite a lot so that is two wildly different wildly different uh, pieces of media running man and russian doll brilliant so that is the end of our episode about vampire's kiss we are moving on next week with um well i've mentioned the uh, mentioned marvel already a couple of minutes ago and it's a film about a lesser known Marvel character and it's a good decade before the MCU came into existence but it's the 1998 Wesley Snipes film Blade. I'm really excited to do this one because having wax lyrical in this episode about how vampirism is about something and it isn't just about vampirism this is a movie I remember from my youth just being about vampires so I don't recall any kind of depth to it that I've extolled the virtues of here, so I'm looking forward to maybe finding something more there. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at FM. And we'll see you back here in two weeks for Blade. <laughs>